Chapter Four, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Four, Part Two. The meditations of Mr. Pecksniff that evening at the bar of the Dragon and that night in his own house were very serious and grave indeed, the more especially as the intelligence he had received from Messrs. Tigg and Slime, touching the arrival of other members of the family, were fully confirmed on more particular inquiry, for the Spottletoes had actually gone straight to the Dragon, where they were at that moment housed and mounting guard, and where their appearance had occasioned such a vast sensation that Mrs. Lupin, scenting their errand before they had been under her roof half an hour, carried the news herself, with all possible secrecy, straight to Mr. Pecksniff's house. Indeed, it was her great caution in doing so which occasioned her to miss that gentleman, who entered at the front door of the dragon just as she emerged from the back one. Moreover, Mr. Anthony Chuzzlewit and his son Jonas were economically quartered at the half-moon and seven stars, which was an obscure alehouse, and by the very next coach there came posting to the scene of action so many other affectionate members of the family, who quarrelled with each other inside and out all the way down, to the utter distraction of the coachman, that in less than four-and-twenty hours the scanty tavern accommodation was at a premium, and all the private lodgings in the place, amounting to full four beds and sofa, rose cent per cent in the market. In a word, things came to that pass that nearly the whole family sat down before the blue dragon and formally invested it, and Martin Chuzzlewit was in a state of siege. But he resisted bravely, refusing to receive all letters, messages, and parcels, obstinately declining to treat with anybody, and holding out no hope or promise of capitulation. Meantime the family forces were perpetually encountering each other in divers parts of the neighbourhood, and as no one branch of the Chuzzlewit tree had ever been known to agree with another within the memory of man, there was such a skirmishing and flouting and snapping off of heads, in the metaphorical sense of that expression, such a bandying of words and calling of names, such an upturning of noses and wrinkling of brows, such a formal interment of good feelings and violent resurrection of ancient grievances, as had never been known in those quiet parts since the earliest record of their civilized existence. At length, in utter despair and hopelessness, some few of the belligerents began to speak to each other, in only moderate terms of mutual aggravation, and nearly all addressed themselves with a show of tolerable decency to Mr. Pecksniff, in recognition of his high character and influential position. Thus, by little and little, they made common cause of Martin Chuzzlewit's obduracy, until it was agreed, if such a word can be used in connection with the Chuzzlewits, that there should be a general council and conference held at Mr. Pecksniff's house upon a certain day at noon, which all members of the family who had brought themselves within reach of the summons were forthwith bidden and invited solemnly to attend. If ever Mr. Pecksniff wore an apostolic look, he wore it on this memorable day. If ever his unruffled smile proclaimed the words, I am a messenger of peace, that was its mission now. If ever man combined within himself all the mild qualities of the lamb, with a considerable touch of the dove, and not a dash of the crocodile, or the least possible suggestion of the very mildest seasoning of the serpent, that man was he. 
and oh the two miss pecksniffs oh the serene expression on the face of charity which seemed to say i know that all my family have injured me beyond the possibility of reparation but i forgive them for it is my duty to do so and oh the gay simplicity of mercy so charming innocent and infant-like that if she had gone out walking by herself and it had been a little earlier in the season the robin redbreasts might have covered her with leaves against her will believing her to be one of the sweet children in the wood come out of it and issuing forth once more to look for blackberries in the young freshness of her heart what words can paint the pecksniffs in that trying hour oh none for words have naughty company among them, and the Pecksniffs were all goodness. But when the company arrived, that was the time, when Mr. Pecksniff, rising from his seat at the table's head, with a daughter on either hand, received his guests in the best parlour, and motioned them to chairs with eyes so overflowing, and countenance so damp with gracious perspiration, that he may be said to have been in a kind of moist meekness, and the company, the jealous, stony-hearted, distrustful company, who were all shut up in themselves, and had no faith in anybody, and wouldn't believe anything, and would no more allow themselves to be softened or lulled asleep by the pecksniffs than if they had been so many hedgehogs or porcupines. First there was Mr. Spottletoe, who was so bald, and had such big whiskers, that he seemed to have stopped his hair by the sudden application of some powerful remedy, in the very act of falling off his head, and to have fastened it irrevocably on his face. Then there was Mrs. Spottletoe, who, being much too slim for her years, and of a poetical constitution, was accustomed to inform her more intimate friends that the said whiskers were the lodestar of her existence, and who could now, by reason of her strong affection for her uncle Chuzzlewit, and the shock it gave her to be suspected of testamentary designs upon him, do nothing but cry except moan. Then there were Anthony Chuzzlewit and his son Jonas. The face of the old man, so sharpened by the wariness and cunning of his life, that it seemed to cut him a passage through the crowded room as he edged away behind the remotest chairs, while the son had so well profited by the precept and example of the father, that he looked a year or two the elder of the twain, as they stood winking their red eyes side by side and whispering to each other softly. Then there was the widow of a deceased brother of Mr. Martin Chuzzlewit, who, being almost supernaturally disagreeable, and having a dreary face and a bony figure and a masculine voice, was, in right of these qualities, what is commonly called a strong-minded woman, and who, if she could, would have established her claim to the title, and have shown herself, mentally speaking, a perfect Samson, by shutting up her brother-in-law in a private madhouse, until he proved his complete sanity by loving her very much. Beside her sat her spinster daughters, three in number, and of gentlemanly deportment, who had so mortified themselves with tight stays that their tempers were reduced to something less than their waists, and sharp lacing was expressed in their very noses. Then there was a young gentleman, grand-nephew of Mr. Martin Chuzzlewit, very dark and very hairy, and apparently born for no particular purpose but to save looking-glasses the trouble of reflecting more than just the first idea and sketchy notion of a face, which had never been carried out. Then there was a solitary female cousin who was remarkable for nothing but being very deaf, and living by herself, and always having the toothache. Then there was George Chuzzlewit, a gay bachelor cousin who claimed to be young, but had been younger, and was inclined to corpulency, and rather overfed himself, to that extent, indeed, that his eyes were strained in their sockets, 
as if with constant surprise, and he had such an obvious disposition to pimples that the bright spots on his cravat, the rich pattern on his waistcoat, and even his glittering trinkets seemed to have broken out upon him, and not to have come into existence comfortably. Last of all there were present Mr. Chevy Slime and his friend Tig, and it is worthy of remark that although each person present disliked the other, mainly because he or she did belong to the family, they one and all concurred in hating Mr. Tig because he didn't. Such was the pleasant little family circle now assembled in Mr. Pecksniff's best parlour, agreeably prepared to fall foul of Mr. Pecksniff or anybody else who might venture to say anything whatever upon any subject. This, said Mr. Pecksniff, rising and looking round upon them with folded hands, does me good. It does my daughters good. We thank you for assembling here. We are grateful to you with our whole hearts. It is a blessed distinction that you have conferred upon us, and believe me, it is impossible to conceive how he smiled here. We shall not easily forget it. I am sorry to interrupt you, Pecksniff, remarked Mr. Spottletoe, with his whiskers in a very portentous state, but you are assuming too much to yourself, sir. Who do you imagine has it in contemplation to confer a distinction upon you, sir? A general murmur echoed this inquiry and applauded it. If you are about to pursue the course with which you have begun, sir, pursued Mr. Spottletoe in a great heat, and giving a violent rap on the table with his knuckles, the sooner you desist and this assembly separates the better. I am no stranger, sir, to your preposterous desire to be regarded as the head of this family, but I can tell you, sir. Oh, yes, indeed. He tell. He. What? He was the head, was he? From the strong-minded woman downwards, everybody fell that instant upon Mr. Spottletoe, who, after vainly attempting to be heard in silence, was fain to sit down again, folding his arms and shaking his head most wrathfully, and giving Mrs. Spottletoe to understand, in dumb show, that that scoundrel Pecksniff might go on for the present, but he would cut in presently and annihilate him. "'I am not sorry,' said Mr. Pecksniff, in resumption of his address. "'I am really not sorry that this little incident has happened. "'It is good to feel that we are met here without disguise. "'It is good to know that we have no reserve before each other, "'but are appearing freely in our own characters.' "'Here the eldest daughter of the strong-minded woman "'rose a little way from her seat, "'and trembling violently from head to foot, more, as it seemed, with passion than timidity, expressed a general hope that some people would appear in their own characters, if it were only for such a proceeding having the attraction of novelty to recommend it, and that when they, meaning the some people before mentioned, talked about their relations, they would be careful to observe who was present in company at the time, otherwise it might come round to those relations' ears in a way they little expected." "'And as to red noses,' she observed, "'she had yet to learn that a red nose was any disgrace, "'inasmuch as people neither made nor coloured their own noses, "'but had that feature provided for them without being first consulted, "'though even upon that branch of the subject "'she had great doubts whether certain noses were redder than other noses, "'or indeed half as red as some. "'This remark being received with a shrill titter by the two sisters of the speaker, Miss Charity Pecksniff begged with much politeness to be informed whether any of those very low observations were levelled at her, and receiving no more explanatory answer than was conveyed in the adage, "'Those the cap fits let them wear it,' immediately commenced a somewhat acrimonious and personal retort, wherein she was much comforted and abetted by her sister Mercy, 
who laughed at the same with great heartiness, indeed far more naturally than life and it being quite impossible that any difference of opinion can take place among women without every woman who is within hearing taking active part in it, the strong-minded lady and her two daughters, and Mrs. Spottletoe and the deaf cousin, who was not at all disqualified from joining in the dispute by reason of being perfectly unacquainted with its merits, one and all plunged into the quarrel directly. The two Miss Pecksniffs, being a pretty good match for the three Miss Chuzzlewits, and all five young ladies having, in the figurative language of the day, a great amount of steam to dispose of, the altercation would no doubt have been a long one, but for the high valour and prowess of the strong-minded woman, who, in right of her reputation for powers of sarcasm, did so belabour and pummel Mrs. Spottletoe with taunting words that the poor lady, before the engagement was two minutes old, had no refuge but in tears. These she shed so plentifully and so much to the agitation and grief of Mr. Spottletoe that that gentleman, after holding his clenched fist close to Mr. Pecksniff's eyes, as if it were some natural curiosity, from the near inspection whereof he was likely to derive high gratification and improvement, and after offering, for no particular reason that anybody could discover, to kick Mr. George Chuzzlewit for, and in consideration of, the trifling sum of sixpence, took his wife under his arm, and indignantly withdrew. This diversion, by distracting the attention of the combatants, put an end to the strife, which, after breaking out afresh some twice or thrice, in certain inconsiderable spurts and dashes, died away in silence. It was then that Mr. Pecksniff once more rose from his chair. It was then that the two Miss Pecksniffs composed themselves to look as if there were no such beings, not to say present, but in the whole compass of the world, as the three Miss Chuzzlewits, while the three Miss Chuzzlewits became equally unconscious of the existence of the two Miss Pecksniffs. "'It is to be lamented,' said Mr. Pecksniff, with a forgiving recollection of Mr. Spottletoe's fist, that our friend should have withdrawn himself so very hastily, though we have cause for mutual congratulation even in that, since we are assured that he is not distrustful of us in regard to anything we may say or do while he is absent. Now that is very soothing, is it not?' "'Pecksniff,' said Anthony, who had been watching the whole party with peculiar keenness from the first, "'don't you be a hypocrite.' "'A what, my good sir?' demanded Mr. Pecksniff. A hypocrite. Charity, my dear, said Mr. Pecksniff, when I take my chamber candlestick to-night, remind me to be more than usually particular in praying for Mr. Anthony Chuzzlewit, who has done me an injustice. This was said in a very bland voice, and aside as being addressed to his daughter's private ear. With a cheerfulness of conscience, prompting almost a sprightly demeanour, he then resumed. All our thoughts centering in our very dear but unkind relative, and he being, as it were, beyond our reach, we are met to-day, really as if we were a funeral party, except, a blessed exception, that there is no body in the house. The strong-minded lady was not at all sure that this was a blessed exception, quite the contrary. "'Well, my dear madam,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'Be that as it may, here we are, and being here, we are to consider whether it is possible, by any justifiable means—' "'Why, you know as well as I,' said the strong-minded lady, "'that any means are justifiable in such a case, don't you?' "'Very good, my dear madam, very good. 
whether it is possible by any means, we will say by any means, to open the eyes of our valued relative to his present infatuation, whether it is possible to make him acquainted by any means with the real character and purpose of that young female, whose strange, whose very strange position in reference to himself, here Mr. Pecksniff sunk his voice to an impressive whisper, really casts a shadow of disgrace and shame upon this family, and who we know, here he raised his voice again, else why is she his companion? Harbors the very basest designs upon his weakness and his property. In their strong feeling on this point, they, who agreed in nothing else, all concurred as one mind. Good heaven that she should harbor designs upon his property— the strong-minded lady was for poison, her three daughters were for bridewell and bread and water. The cousin with the toothache advocated Botany Bay. The two Miss Pecksniffs suggested flogging. Nobody but Mr. Tigg, who notwithstanding his extreme shabbiness, was still understood to be in some sort a ladies' man, in right of his upper lip and his frogs, indicated a doubt of the justifiable nature of these measures, and he only ogled the three Miss Chuzzlewits with the least admixture of banter in his admiration, as though he would observe, "'You are positively down upon her to too great an extent, my sweet creatures, upon my soul you are.' "'Now,' said Mr. Pecksniff, crossing his two forefingers in a manner which was at once conciliatory and argumentative, "'I will not, upon the one hand, go so far as to say that she deserves all the inflictions which have been so very forcibly and hilariously suggested, one of his ornamental sentences. Nor will I, upon the other, on any account compromise my common understanding as a man by making the assertion that she does not. What I would observe is that I think some practical means might be devised of inducing our respected, shall I say our revered, no, interposed the strong-minded woman in a loud voice, "'Then I will not,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'You are quite right, my dear madam, "'and I appreciate and thank you for your discriminating objection. "'Our respected relative to dispose himself to listen to the promptings of nature "'and not to the—' "'Go on, Pa,' cried Mercy. "'Why, the truth is, my dear,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'smiling upon his assembled kindred, "'that I am at a loss for a word. "'The name of those fabulous animals, pagan, I regret to say, who used to sing in the water has quite escaped me. Mr. George Chuzzlewit suggested swans. No, said Mr. Pecksniff, not swans. Very like swans, too, thank you. The nephew, with the outline of a countenance, speaking for the first and last time on that occasion, propounded oysters. No, said Mr. Pecksniff, with his own peculiar urbanity, nor oysters. "'but by no means unlike oysters. "'A very excellent idea. "'Thank you, my dear sir, very much. "'Wait. "'Sirens. "'Dear me. "'Sirens, of course. "'I think, I say, "'that means might be devised "'of disposing our respected relative "'to listen to the promptings of nature "'and not to the siren-like delusions of art. "'Now we must not lose sight of the fact "'that our esteemed friend has a grandson.' "'to whom he was, until lately, very much attached, "'and whom I could have wished to see here to-day, "'for I have a real and deep regard for him. "'A fine young man, a very fine young man. "'I would submit to you whether we might not remove "'Mr. Chuzzlewit's distrust of us, "'and vindicate our own disinterestedness by— "'If Mr. George Chuzzlewit has anything to say to me,' 
interposed the strong-minded woman sternly. "'I beg him to speak out like a man, and not to look at me and my daughters as if he could eat us.' "'As to looking, I have heard it said, Mrs. Ned,' returned Mr. George angrily, "'that a cat is free to contemplate a monarch, "'and therefore I hope I have some right, having been born a member of this family, "'to look at a person who only came into it by marriage. "'As to eating, I beg to say, whatever bitterness your jealousies and disappointed expectations may suggest to you, "'that I am not a cannibal, ma'am.' "'I don't know that,' cried the strong-minded woman.' "'At all events, if I was a cannibal,' said Mr. George Chuzzlewit, greatly stimulated by this retort, "'I think it would occur to me that a lady who had outlived three husbands, "'and suffered so very little from their loss, must be uncommonly tough.' "'The strong-minded woman immediately rose. "'And I will further add,' said Mr. George, nodding his head violently at every second syllable, "'naming no names, and therefore hurting nobody but those whose consciences tell them they are alluded to,' "'that I think it would be much more decent and becoming "'if those who hooked and crooked themselves into this family "'by getting on the blind side of some of its members before marriage "'and manslaughtering them afterwards by crowing over them "'to that strong pitch that they were glad to die, "'would refrain from acting the part of vultures "'in regard to other members of this family who are living. "'I think it would be full as well, if not better, "'if those individuals would keep at home, "'contending themselves with what they have got, luckily for them, already,' instead of hovering about and thrusting their fingers into a family pie, which they flavour much more than enough, I can tell them, when they are fifty miles away. "'I might have been prepared for this,' cried the strong-minded woman, looking about her with a disdainful smile, as she moved towards the door, followed by her three daughters. "'Indeed I was fully prepared for it from the first. What else could I expect in such an atmosphere as this?' "'Don't direct your half-pay officer's gaze at me, ma'am, if you please,' interposed Miss Charity, "'for I won't bear it.' This was a smart stab at a pension enjoyed by the strong-minded woman during her second widowhood and before her last coverture. It told immensely. "'I passed from the memory of a grateful country, you very miserable minx,' said Mrs. Ned, "'when I entered this family.' "'And I feel now, though I did not feel then, that it served me right, "'and that I lost my claim upon the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland "'when I so degraded myself. "'Now, my dears, if you're quite ready, "'and have sufficiently improved yourselves by taking to heart "'the genteel example of these two young ladies, I think we'll go. "'Mr. Pecksniff, we are very much obliged to you, really. "'We came to be entertained, and you have far surpassed our utmost expectations "'in the amusement you have provided for us. Thank you.' Goodbye. With such departing words did this strong-minded female paralyze the Pecksniffian energies, and so she swept out of the room and out of the house, attended by her daughters, who, as with one accord, elevated their three noses in the air and joined in a contemptuous titter. As they passed the parlour window on the outside, they were seen to counterfeit a perfect transport of delight among themselves and with this final blow and great discouragement for those within, they vanished. Before Mr. Pecksniff or any of his remaining visitors could offer a remark, another figure passed this window, coming at a great rate in the opposite direction. And immediately afterwards Mr. Spottletoe burst into the chamber. Compared with his present state of heat, he had gone out a man of snow or ice, his head distilled such oil upon his whiskers that they were rich and clogged with unctuous drops. 
His face was violently inflamed, his limbs trembled, and he gasped and strove for breath. "'My good sir!' cried Mr. Pecksniff. "'Oh, yes,' returned the other. "'Oh, yes, certainly. Oh, to be sure. Oh, of course. You hear him? You hear him, all of you?' "'What's the matter?' cried several voices. "'Oh, nothing,' cried Spottletoe, still gasping. "'Nothing at all. It's of no consequence. Ask him. He'll tell you.' "'I do not understand our friend,' said Mr. Pecksniff, looking about him in utter amazement. "'I assure you that he is quite unintelligible to me.' "'Unintelligible, sir?' cried the other. "'Unintelligible? Do you mean to say, sir, that you don't know what has happened?' "'that you haven't decoyed us here "'and laid a plot and a plan against us? "'Will you venture to say that you didn't know "'Mr. Chuzzlewit was going, sir, "'and that you don't know he's gone, sir?' "'Gone!' was the general cry. "'Gone!' echoed Mr. Spottletoe. "'Gone, while we were sitting here. "'Gone. Nobody knows where he's gone. "'Oh, of course not. "'Nobody knew he was going. "'Oh, of course not. "'The landlady thought up to the very last moment "'that they were merely going for a ride. "'She had no other suspicion. "'Oh, of course not. "'She's not this fellow's creature. "'Oh, of course not.' "'Adding to these exclamations a kind of ironical howl, "'and gazing upon the company for one brief instant afterwards, "'in a sudden silence, "'the irritated gentleman started off again "'at the same tremendous pace, "'and was seen no more.' It was in vain for Mr. Pecksniff to assure them that this new and opportune evasion of the family was at least as great a shock and surprise to him as to anybody else. Of all the bullyings and denunciations that were ever heaped on one unlucky head, none can ever have exceeded in energy and heartiness those with which he was complimented by each of his remaining relatives, singly, upon bidding him farewell. The moral position taken by Mr. Tigg was something quite tremendous, and the deaf cousin, who had the complicated aggravation of seeing all the proceedings, and hearing nothing but the catastrophe, actually scraped her shoes upon the scraper, and afterwards distributed impressions of them all over the top step, in token that she shook the dust from her feet before quitting that dissembling and perfidious mansion. Mr. Pecksniff had, in short, but one comfort— and that was the knowledge that all these, his relations and friends, had hated him to the very utmost extent before, and that he, for his part, had not distributed among them any more love than with his ample capital in that respect he could comfortably afford to part with. This view of his affairs yielded him great consolation, and the fact deserves to be noted as showing with what ease a good man may be consoled under circumstances of failure and disappointment. End of chapter 4, part 2